Abraham Lincoln said, We the people are the rightful masters of both Congress and the courts, not to overthrow the Constitution, but to overthrow the men who pervert the Constitution. Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders. We're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. We're doing that with David and Tim Barton. Tim's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. David Barton, of course, America's premier historian and our founder at Wall Builders. And I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution coach and a former Texas legislator. It's an honor to serve with these guys. I hope that you enjoy the program. Hope you check us out at wallbuilders.com. So many great tools there. Whether you want to get into some of the videos or, or, or you know books or whatever it is and dive a little deeper into our founding principles and learn those things, or you just want to listen to some of the archives of the radio program, there's so much there. But one thing I do want to ask you to do when you get to that website, wallbuilders.com, make a contribution. Help invest in freedom. You know, lives, fortunes, sacred honor, fortunes. It takes fuel in the tank. Everybody's got to be willing to give a little bit. You know, if you can just do a small contribution there, maybe you can do a big one today. It helps us to train more pastors and teachers and young people and legislators and all the things that we're doing at Wall Builders to restore America's constitutional republic. And also it helps us to add stations to, to reach more people with this program where we're teaching truth. We're getting into the foundations. That's what today's all about. Foundations of Freedom Thursday is to get into, the, it's an opportunity for all of us to get into those foundational principles and answer your questions. And it's a great time for us to share and to learn and sharpen each other's countenance. All right, David and Tim, let's jump in. Our first question is coming from Michael. He said, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being you completely agree and 1 being you completely disagree. Well, Michael, I can answer this already. We're very disagreeable people, so we're all a 1. That's it. We don't even need to know what the question is. No, let's go for it. He says, what do you think of the following? Many Americans in the 18th and 19th century, such as Washington, Jefferson, Madison, John Randolph, and others in slave states opposed slavery. However, many of them preferred slow, gradual emancipation and provision of finances, property, and education of all slaves over immediate emancipation of them. This was because of great fear that prejudices from white people and bitterness from black people, especially ones who were slaves, would provoke a race war, which happened in Santo Domingo and Haiti uh, in the early 19th century. Okay, so there's the question, guys. Um, did those guys, and he, he specifically named Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and John Randolph, um, in some of these slave states, and, and maybe it's in their writings or, or whatever, did they, um, you know, did they oppose slavery but wanted to do it slowly over time, meaning get rid of it slowly over time? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's 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 not quite a loaded question, but there's certainly a loaded answer uh, because there's a lot of context that you have to keep in mind for some of this conversation. At that time, when you're looking at the 1700s, there was virtually nowhere in the world that did not have slavery. Uh, where where people were either enslaving others themselves, being enslaved, it was going back and forth. This was the way of the world. And so as the founding fathers are, are beginning a political anti-slavery movement, which arguably, right, the founding fathers are the only ones in the world at that time from a political standpoint, right? This isn't talking about like maybe the Quakers in America who have an abolition movement and even founding fathers who are part of the abolition movement in America. But we're talking about when it comes to not just a religious group, when you're talking about the political leaders of the nation, when when there are people in the world that have money and have political positions, whether they be kings or lords or nobles, right, whatever it was in Europe, anywhere around the world, the, the, the practice, the standard of the world at that time was to have slaves. So even the question asked about founding fathers in the South, it wasn't just founding fathers in the South, because even Northern states, they were passing laws for gradual abolition. So they passed laws to end slavery, 
But part of their laws was slavery would be ended in X number of years or that that there could be no new people enslaved and that if if the current people that were slaves had children, their children would be born free. And so it was only this generation of slaves that would remain. But they called these gradual abolition laws because they said, we will not have any more slaves, but we will not necessarily take away the slaves from the people that have purchased them. And I understand as we say that the argument is, oh, so they viewed them as property. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot more conversation, but it's oftentimes, again, we forget some of the context that slavery, this wasn't just white people enslaving black people, right? This wasn't an American evil. This was a evil around the world. And so the fact that anybody is taking a step against it becomes significant. Now, why did they choose gradual and not instant? Well, there was a debate and discussion between founding fathers where some of them said, no, end it all right now. And some said there could be major problems where there could be war and we don't want war. And so I do think that there were people on both sides of the issue. And some people said it's it's worth the consequences in slavery now. And some people said that that's a little bit too much of a rash decision to say that everybody is free. There could be more issues involved. So it wasn't just founding fathers from the South. I think there was there was more founding fathers included in that. There were definitely some from the North that held similar sentiments and positions. And there were some from the South that that advocated for not just gradual abolition, but for immediate abolition. Although certainly from the South, the ones that were pro uh, abolition, you do see more of a gradual sense than from the North. You do see more of an immediate sense, but th- that's just a little bit more of the context behind there. Dad, I know you have already some notes written down on this, so I will yield the remainder of my time at this moment to my uh, colleague across the table. Well, you, you hit a lot of the key points, but one thing to remember too is the summary that Michael set forth is it's a decent summary of people in the South. But you got to remember that the South is where the minority of the founding fathers were because that's where the minority of the population was. Most of the population was in the North and most of the founding fathers were in the North and most of the founding fathers were not gradual abolition. And Tim, as you pointed out, some states were. New Jersey was, Pennsylvania was, but Massachusetts was not and, and Maine was not and New Hampshire was not and Vermont was not. And all those states were immediate right now ended. So what Michael's described is a good summary of where it ended up in the South. But you've also got to remember it ended up there because that was the middle of all three positions. Some wanted no end of slavery. Some wanted it ended right now. And others said, well, let's let's get the middle ground on that. So it's a good description of where they all ended up when it finally came to policy. But it's not necessarily an accurate description of what they all believed at the time. Uh, especially when you get out of the South. But it's, it's a great way to summarize it. And Tim, I mean, your caveat was right. You just got to remember that this is not exclusive to the Founding Fathers. This is going on in the whole world at the time. But the Founding Fathers, even those in the South, were decades ahead of the rest of the world, even in this position that they ended up in the South with. And that was this this kind of progressive progressive into slavery. And this could take us back to, to the original draft of the Declaration, where the largest grievance in the original draft, right, the Committee of Five, as they put this together, you have Jefferson and Adams and Franklin and Livingston and Sherman, as they're working together to put together the original draft of the Declaration, the largest grievance in the original draft is a grievance against the slave trade, arguing for the humanity of the slaves, those that were enslaved, saying, look, these are men and all men are created equal. They're making that connection. The reason that grievance did not make it in the final draft was because there were two states that opposed it. Those states were Georgia and South Carolina, specifically the delegates from those states. And if you look at the founding fathers, there definitely were some founding fathers that are in the racist category. There definitely are some that were in the pro-slavery category. And this is where when you begin to look and see where 
who were those founding fathers and where did they reside? The majority of the pro-slavery founding fathers were from states like Georgia and South Carolina. There were a couple from New York, but, but generally speaking, the majority of them were from the South. And so this is also not to say that every founding father was anti-slavery. And, and it's not to say that there weren't racist founding fathers. There were some that fall in the racist category, but it wasn't the majority of founding fathers. The majority of founding fathers had a much more enlightened position than the rest of the world at that time. And again, this is where nowhere else in the world did you have the political leaders of a nation take such a strong position against slavery. And they lay the foundation for the anti-slavery movement, not just in America, but literally when England enslaved in 1833, one of the things you can see in England is the influence, the arguments even of the abolitionists in England are influenced by the notion of the declaration that all men are created equal. That kind of phrasing was used in arguments around the world. The founding fathers laid the foundation for the abolition movement, not just in America, but the rest of the world. All right, guys, let's go to our second question. Next up is Laura in Ohio. She said, uh, "She said, my boys and I have been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. Recently, we had the opportunity to meet with our state rep where homeschool kids were allowed to ask whatever they wanted. My 12-year-old apparently was very concerned about taxes. I'm sorry, guys. I, I love that. My 12-year-old well, was very concerned about taxes. The rep said, wow, your mom must be doing a really good job teaching you about the Constitution, to which he applied wall builders. <laughs> so the rep said he was familiar with you guys, and his wife said she's a big fan of yours. Anyway, the question I was planning to ask was about the right to privacy. Since it's getting harder and harder to even get a refrigerator that doesn't have a camera or isn't trying to collect your personal data. Prior to the meeting, I was looking at uh, I was looking via DuckDuckGo where in the Constitution it addresses the right to privacy, only to find that the Constitution doesn't expressly give us that right. Can you expound upon why the Founding Fathers didn't clearly spell out the right to privacy for every citizen? Is it because they didn't foresee the technology to come and thought it was all covered in the Bill of Rights? Thank you for all that you do. All right, David, Tim, I usually just immediately say, what do you think? I, I got to just say uh, one thing. Uh, just, Lark, great question. Love the fact that your son's thinking about this at 12. And I shouldn't be this nitpicky over, over language, but when you say the Constitution didn't expressly give us that right, just a reminder, Constitution doesn't give you any rights. God gave you those rights. Constitution's there to protect those rights, and it doesn't list them all, uh, you know, Ninth Amendment, all that good stuff. But guys, that's probably what we're going to talk about here. So yeah, right to privacy, those words are nowhere in the Constitution. And unfortunately, people sometimes think right to privacy means abortion, even when they use those words that aren't in the Constitution. But she's talking about our personal privacy from government's prying eyes. Well, Eric, you made a great point already uh, about not only where the rights come from, but even when we talk about rights and the Constitution doesn't list all of our rights, no. But the Constitution does list all of the power and authority the federal government has. And what does the federal government right. not have the power and authority to do? To invade your privacy. That, that's not a power they have, which is also part of when you look at the due process of the Bill of Rights and, and you see things like privacy to the home. The Founding Fathers literally addressed the issues of privacy, but they addressed it in the sense and the context of what they dealt with. When you go back to the Declaration and, and you see that they had these these writs that people could, these, these search warrants that were blank search warrants that somebody could show up at your house and they could come into your house and they could invade your privacy and they could look for some kind of violation. And then if they found a violation, then they would fill out this writ and say, OK, you're guilty of this crime. And the founding fathers clearly said, nope, the right to privacy, that, that there cannot be a search without a valid search warrant identifying what's there. Right? This is part of the constitutional foundation laid out in the Bill of Rights. It's, it's where this derives from and originates. And so the founding fathers did protect privacy in the only way they were really seeing that privacy being violated 
It's just that we have come so far with the application of technology and, and with the change of lifestyle in many regards from the benefits of the technology that the founding fathers, there's no way they could have ever envisioned it going this far, but they do lay out, we talk about this a lot, in the constitution, it lays out the principles, not the specific details. And that's why the constitution is still so applicable to this day is because it deals with the principles of government, not necessarily with all of these specific details of our day-to-day life and, and how it applies. And this is where I think sometimes we miss the concept and notion of the principle that is being outlined in the Bill of Rights or in the Constitution, or the fact the Constitution tells the government the explicit things it can do, and it's not supposed to do anything the Constitution didn't give the power and authority to do. And then to go a little further, when they wrote the Bill of Rights, the Founding Fathers wrote a, it was known as a negative listing of rights in the sense of that these are a list of things the government can never touch and can never infringe on, and part of it was the right to privacy. That is in the Bill of Rights. And again, it was including the only context that they had seen privacy being violated. At least that would be my take. Dad, what's your thought? I would build some fences around it because there is, as you said, a lot of right to privacy. There's the right to privacy on on what your religious faith is and how you practice that, and the government can't get involved with that. That's up to you. There's rights of privacy, you said, on the rights of assistance and, and, and the Fourth Amendment, particularly on, on search warrants and how specific they have to be. And there's rights of privacy on you can't quarter government troops in your home. There's all these all these things that, that as really going back to James Otis in 1761, founding father, he said, a man's home is his castle. You, you don't get to invade that castle. You don't get to walk into it anytime you want to. So there was that concept. Now, what we call the right to privacy really is a rhetorical product of Roe v. Wade. And Roe v. Wade is where they're saying, hey, because there's a right to privacy, you, you can't stop abortions. Now, this is where I want to back up and say, in the context of all of the Bill of Rights, Washington, all the other founders continually emphasize that this is within the parameters of what they called religion and morality. Uh, George Washington, farewell address, religion and morality. That's where everything comes from. That's what the Constitution is based on. And so to take a right to privacy apart from religion and morality takes you in a direction that is really not healthy and not good for society. And that's what Roe v. Wade did. Uh, because quite frankly, I mean, even today, we don't allow right to privacy if you abuse your children or if there's spousal abuse. We don't allow right to privacy with, with polygamy. We don't allow right to privacy if you, if you commit theft in the privacy of your home or if you engage in, in child grooming in the privacy of your home. No, no we're going to get involved in that. And that goes back to religion and morality. So the concept of, of privacy was really kind of put forth in, in this open-ended way by the Roe v. Wade court to stop religious and moral influences. And that used to be a religious and moral position that taking an unborn life is wrong. No, no, no. You can do that in the privacy of your home between you and your doctor. So the right to privacy, as Tim, you outlined it, it's really clear in the Constitution, but it does not include the right to do anything you want to as long as it's in the privacy of your home. And that's a really a, a strong moral and religious boundary that needs to be reestablished in people's thinking. And this is where libertarianism has been so harmful is whatever I do in the privacy of my home, I can do myself. I, I can do drugs. I can do whatever. How about the way in Colorado now that you doing drugs is causing all these car wrecks and, and killing people on the highways because of what you do in the privacy of your home? So there has to be a moral and a religious measurement for that. Um, but within the framework of that, that's what the founding fathers, they did have a right to privacy, but certainly not the way we define it today. Yeah. And, and you know, guys, this is a broader subject. And maybe we, we cover this even more in a, in a future program. But sometimes we get this this weird view of, of liberty 
that we think that that means you know what the founders called natural liberty if you're living on an island you can do whatever you want as long as nature doesn't stop you but what we have is civil liberty and and even the founders they were clear about that civil liberty means your natural liberty is going to be inhibited in some ways uh, because you're living among other people and there just has to be some some you know rules for for life in a society in a in a neighborhood and uh, and so I think that that gets us hopefully when we think through those things, we move away from this kind of libertarian idea that it's just whatever you want to do. And there are zero limits no matter what. And I don't think that's what the gal was asking uh, in, in, in her question. Was it Laura? Uh, but it but it is, uh, you know, it's definitely important for us to recognize, hey, there's things not listed in the Constitution that, that you do have. Um, even bodily autonomy. You know, guys, that's another one. It's like the founders didn't say, hey, government cannot make you uh, inject things into your body or make you wear a mask or whatever. But those were still rights. That bodily autonomy was something that they just didn't think they had to list, which is what the, the Ninth Amendment would cover that as as well. But, David, I think what you're saying is so important, especially for our side, you know, and, and a lot of the folks in our circles that we talk about, because we are we're tired of government intrusion and, and we want government to leave us alone. But, man, when you live in society, there's some things you, you know, you need government for. Government's not a, a bad institution if it's in its lane that God designed it to be. It's actually a blessing. It's when it gets outside its lane, that's when it becomes a curse. Okay, went over the halfway mark, guys. Take a quick break. We'll come back. We got some more questions from the audience. You're listening to Wall Builders. Hi, friends. This is Tim Barton of Wall Builders. This is a time when most Americans don't know much about American history or even heroes of the faith. And I know oftentimes for parents, we're trying to find good content for our kids to read. And if you remember back to the Bible, to the book of Hebrews, it has the Faith Hall of Fame where they outline the leaders of faith that had gone before them. Well, this is something that as Americans, we really want to go back and outline some of these heroes, not just of American history, but heroes of Christianity and our faith as well. I want to let you know about some biographical sketches we have available on our website. One is called the Courageous Leaders Collection. And this collection includes people like Abigail Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Francis Scott Key, George Washington Carver, Susanna Wesley, even the Wright brothers. And there's a second collection called Heroes of History. In this collection, you'll read about people like Benjamin Franklin or Christopher Columbus, Daniel Boone, George Washington, Harriet Tubman, Friends, the list goes on and on. This is a great collection for your young person to have and read, and it's a providential view of American and Christian history. This is available at wallbuilders.com. That's www.wallbuilders.com. President Thomas Jefferson said, I know no safe depository of the ultimate powers of the society, but the people themselves. And if we think them not enlightened enough to exercise their control with a wholesome discretion, the remedy is not to take it from them, but to inform their discretion by education. This is the true corrective of abuses of constitutional power. We're back here at Wobblers. Thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Diving right back into your questions, folks. You can send them into radio at wallbuilders.com, radio at wallbuilders.com. Michael's question is straight out of the Constitution. He says in Article 2, Section 4, it says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, unless it's $5 million uh, going to Hunter first. and then, No, wait, that part's not in there. Uh, for, uh, for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, are the definition and standard uh, for misdemeanors in Article 2, Section 4, the ones specified by Noah Webster in his dictionary, and are the definition and standards for misdemeanors consistent throughout the U.S. Constitution? Michael, thank you, man. Great question, great detailed question. Uh, David, before you answer that, uh, remind us, Noah Webster and a dictionary, who was this guy, and when did he do this dictionary? Noah Webster was the founding father who fought in the American War for Independence, 
Uh, after the war, he was a legislator. He was a judge. He was the second man of the United States to call for the Constitutional Convention. Palatire Webster, as far as I know, not a relative, was the first guy. He was the second guy. Um, then he is very engaged in saying, you know, to make sure we don't ever go back to Great Britain again, we need an American system of education. So he comes up with spelling, and his words of spelling are very different from British spelling, and that was by design to make us independent in our thinking and independent in, in our relations on education and everything else so we'd never be tempted to go back. Um, he then came up with the dictionary in 1828. He learned 28 different languages so he could take all the words back to their original meanings. And in doing so, he defined Wait a minute. 70, I don't know 000. if I could name 28 different languages. Oh, I don't, thank I don't you very much. I don't know if I could much. name 28 different languages. Exactly. He learned exactly. 28. That's crazy. Yeah. And you look at the languages he learned. It's it just uh, some of them. I don't know how you ever learn that in a life. I don't know how the people who grow up learning it can speak it. I mean, it's, it's crazy what he did. But 28 languages, uh, he defined 70,000 words, 40,000 had not been previously defined. And it's just it's amazing what the guy did. So when you go to the meaning of misdemeanor out of Noah Webster's dictionary, uh, I'll just read it, what it says for him. It says, in law, an offense of a less atrocious nature than a crime. Crimes and misdemeanors are more synonymous terms, but in common usage, the word crime is made to denote offenses of a deeper and more atrocious die, while small faults and omissions of less consequence are comprised under the gentler name of misdemeanors. So when the Constitution talks about impeachment, there are six clauses in the Constitution it talks about high crimes and misdemeanors. And not only Noah Webster, but so many folks who actually had a hand in writing the Constitution, the, the, the 55 delegates at the Constitutional Convention, the 39 who signed it, uh, those guys, they had definitions and they were very clear. The same when you get into the ratification conventions where all the state have, have their, their delegates there to ratify, so to discuss in the Constitution, what does this mean? What does this clause mean? And you get definitions there. So by and large, high crimes and misdemeanors simply means a crime and misdemeanor for someone who's in high office. So a high crime is not higher than a low crime. It's just a crime by someone who's in a high office. So that would be a federal judgeship. It would be a governorship. It would be a presidency. It would not be a U.S. Senate or U.S. US House of Representatives. Um, in 1797, they tried to impeach uh, William Blount, who was a signer of the Constitution, but who got involved in some foreign intrigue. And they tried to impeach him, and, and the founding father said, no, 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 impeachment is, is not for your elected House and Senate. Most people answer directly to the people. What you've got impeachment for is people that don't answer directly to the people, and that would be the president. He has public votes. It's, it's through the Electoral College, et cetera. So high crime and misdemeanor, by defined by so many constitutional commentaries, is simply bad behavior by someone in high office. Now, what's bad behavior? Well, that's subjective. Uh, for example, when you look at the impeachments undertaken by Congress in the early years, they impeached a federal judge for cussing in the courtroom. They said that's bad behavior. That clearly is not a crime, but it's a high crime and misdemeanor by definition under the Constitution. Uh, another judge got drunk in his private life, and they impeached him for being drunk in private life. And, and so as you look down the, the impeachment, there was, a, um, there was a, a cabinet level official that was impeached during the Civil War because he chose someone different for an office than what Congress wanted him to choose. So, I mean, it can be anything at all. It does not have to be something that violates a written crime somewhere. Just in the, in, in the eyes of the people, it has to be something that demeans the office or that takes it down, that gives it less respect, et cetera. Um, the way impeachments run today, you look at Trump and others, 
this is political trial. This has nothing to do with the constitutional clause on high crimes and misdemeanors. This is a partisan witch trial, and that that is not a good deal. So that's the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. And in this case, Webster's definition is fairly close to it. It's just bad behavior. It's not a serious crime. It's something much less than that. Uh, but the way that they have applied it to Trump, like with insurrection or you know creating insurrection by by challenging an election or questioning an election, that could be under the original definition. But the way it's been used in the last century, this is a brand new approach to high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah, I was th- I was thinking as you said that, David, just questioning an election, man, I'd be in prison right now for just asking for a recount. Back in my first race in 1998, I lost by 20 and just said, hey, you know, can we just verify that? Make sure. Ended up winning by 36. You know, today, I guess that's against the law to say, um, just like to make sure, you know, that we counted those things correctly. It's interesting, Rick, that recently some collection of clips have been appearing on the website showing all the Democrats who have challenged the election in the last six to eight years. Uh, even three or four years ago, where the Democrats had a hackathon at the U.S. Senate, and they had these guys that broke into every election machine they had and changed the results. And so they started saying, wow, elections are not safe. They're not secure. You can't trust the machines. I mean, Democrats saying exactly the kind of things that they're, they've been indicting Trump. They're indicting Trump for the very things they themselves have said. And so it really is instructive to go out and you can just check social media. All these Democrats who are talking about how elections are not safe and machines can't be trusted. Everything they're indicting Trump for, Democrats have been saying for a number of years. All right, folks, be sure to send those questions, radio at wallbuilders.com, radio at wallbuilders.com. I hope that today, actually, you after you get more of these foundations, after you learn from these questions and we go back into history and we study these things, I hope that you'll be motivated to do more, that, that, that you won't just sit on the sidelines, that faith without works is dead, that, that you will take your faith, you'll live out your faith in every area of the culture, including how we treat our neighbors and what our society looks like. Get educated on these things. Get more information at wallbuilders.com. Take our biblical citizenship class. Host that class. Become one of our Constitution coaches and host those classes in your home or at your church. Just got back from a coaches conference. Got to hear all these great testimonials of what's happening in communities where they're hosting these classes. It's absolutely phenomenal. And you can be the catalyst for a restoration of those biblical values and constitutional principles. You can be the one to lead the way in your community. Every single one of us can do something. Every single one of us has a voice that needs to be heard. Our values need to be counted. Step up and be a part of the solution, folks. Thanks so much for listening to Waffle. We stand undivided forever.